2: CreativeNotCorporate.com proudly presents the Creative, Not Corporate, Pop Culture and Media Podcast, chronicling the ongoing pop culture battle between the creative minds of music, movies, TV, and radio, and the corporate suits that control them. Now, please welcome your host, a digital media professional with over 25 years' experience in all forms of traditional and digital media, not to mention managing two of the largest online radio podcast networks on earth. Here is the king of podcasts. Hey, Netflix, how much content do you need to put up on your platform? Jesus Christ! Plus, on the Creative Not Corporate Podcast, we're going to talk about the pending Disney deal... Netflix stealing somebody from Fox The Walking Dead is stumbling FX is on the edge of a cliff USA and Sy-Fi are looking for big home runs out of the park this week and iHeartRadio and iHeartMedia are closing in on bankruptcy the ongoing saga continues thanks for joining us here on the Creative Not Corporate podcast king of podcasts here with you Thank you all for being here. Tonight on the show, most importantly, we're going to start with this. Another great interview. As we are going to do the next two weeks, we're going to focus on the movies, specifically talking about movies going into Oscar time. Because Oscars, the 2018 Oscars are coming up next Sunday. And just happened to get a couple of great interviews with some movie types that you're going to love to hear. And they were enjoyable and fantastic at the same time. We're going to play those interviews back for you this week and next week on the show. Let me give you a little heads up. Next week, we'll talk about the great sounds and mixing of Blade Runner and Blade Runner 2049. As we'll be talking with Oscar-winning re-recording sound mixer Doug Hemphill and Oscar-nominated sound mixer Ron Bartlett. And a really great conversation about audio mixing. But this week, we're happy to welcome award-winning cinematographer, Luke Montpellier, which I think I mentioned to you last week we're going to bring on. So we will talk about so many different things that he's been a part of, about an hour-long conversation, and we get into a lot of good stuff. So stay tuned, that's coming up next. Do you realize how we do these shows and how we're able to get all these great guests aboard and how I'm able to go and produce this show on my own without anybody helping me at all? Hmm? Maybe you ask yourself that question. To start this off, well, it's all on me, on my shoulders. The weight of this show is on my shoulders. I chose to create it. I chose to fund it. And now I could use your help on putting some money back into this so I can make sure that we can continue this great show and keep getting the same great guests and, and put all the effort that I'm putting into this show even more so. So I'm asking you to go and help out the best way you possibly can. One of the easiest ways you can do it is through Amazon. You go to our special link, kingofpodcasts.com slash Amazon. And you'll also look for the sponsors page at creativenotcorporate.com. That's right, sponsors page at creativenotcorporate.com. You'll see the sponsors page there, and you'll be able to go ahead and check out Amazon and all of our other sponsors. But Amazon, there is no reason why you should not Buy from Amazon through our website because when you do that, you help out the show. Not only that, you buy all the things that you need to buy without having to go to the stores, without having to go ahead, get up, take your kids with you, get them in the car, roll them around town in the heat, in the cold, get to the store, having to deal with just trying to get with everything, just to trying to get what you need to go and buy without any kind of running around trying to grab things and the kids wanting to grab cereal, or they want to grab toys or whatever they're going to grab. Or maybe you're just there alone, you're single, or you're a professional and you're working on the movie set or you're working in a music, uh, recording studio. Whatever you're doing, you got to get out. Think about it like you're in New York, you're in LA. You got to go find a cab. You got to go find transportation. You got to get an Uber. You got to get yourself to the place. Maybe you don't want to drive because the traffic is a nightmare. You want to get yourself around. You have to go and buy things you want to buy. Are they even going to be out uh, there? You have to go drive all different places to go ahead and find it. So much easier to buy through Amazon when it comes to electronics, gifts, jewelries, groceries, everything, anything and everything you could possibly imagine. You could buy at Amazon through king of slash Amazon, or go to the sponsor page at creative, So now, I am pleased to bring you here on the Creative Not Corporate pop culture media podcast, my interview with award-winning cinematographer, Luc Montpellier. And joining me now here on the Creative Not Corporate podcast is an award-winning cinematographer. And if you don't know what that is, I will explain it a little bit later. Luc Montpellier is an award-winning Canadian cinematographer who shot... A lot of great stuff if you haven't had a chance. I mean, some of the names of the programming or the movies or TV that you uh, I speak about here, you will have heard of. So you'll be surprised that even this podcast is able to get someone of such caliber. So Luke has worked on, right now, the current series called Counterpart, which is uh, starring J.K. Simpson Simpson's on Stars, CBS's Flashpoint, the live event that Fox did a few years back, the Rocky Horror Picture Show, which was done live. And then on top of that, he has worked with some major directors, including Sarah Polly, who did the movies Take This Waltz and Away From Her. Vince Gilligan, who you know best from Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. And David Shore, who is um, hitting one with a real breakaway hit right now on ABC, The Good Doctor, House, Law and & Order, and NYPD Blue. And most recently, Luke was actually uh, involved in the dramatic debut episode of Showtime's brand new series, The, the Shy. So, Luke Montpellier, welcome to the podcast.
3: Happy to be here. Thanks for having me.
2: What an amazing... I'll tell you, you got a resume, I'm hiring you right now.
3: (laughs) (laughs) That's what I want to hear, man. (laughs) Oh, my
2: God. So, you know, it's a fascinating thing. I can't even tell you I even got a chance to do anything like what you've done. I mean, I might have did a student film here and there and wrote a screenplay. That's about it. Mm -hmm. But what you're doing right here is imperative. I mean, for any movie set, it's the people that are behind the scenes that just don't get enough credit because if you're not the director and you're not the artists you're not the actors that are on camera then do the corporate suits in front of you even pay attention to what you're doing but you're so critical to the process so first off for those that might not know what a cinematographer what what your job entails what's most important for you to take care of what do you have to deal with when it comes to cinematography and what is it that you do when it comes to looking into a camera, scouting locations, getting set up for a project? What are some of the things that you want to figure out out right of way that are important to you in your role? Mm-hmm.
3: That's a good question. I'm happy to talk about it. Uh, basically, a cinematographer uh, is the photographer of a movie or television show. Pretty much my job is to help the director with anything related to the camera. I have a technical knowledge and also uh, a creative knowledge of how to achieve certain feels and certain looks. If a director is wanting something very specific for a movie or, or TV show, they sometimes don't always have the technical know-how on how to achieve it. So, pretty much, if the uh, if the director, in military terms, is the general, I'm I'm their lieutenant. Pretty much, I'm kind of under them, uh, working with them and collaborating with them to try try to bring their vision to the screen. And that's the most important thing.
2: You, as a a cinematographer, you're at the behest of the director. You have to be able to say, okay, he's going to demand a lot from you. And you're going to have to be able to go ahead and say, yes, we can do this. No, we can't do this. But you have to be able to over-deliver and under-promise. That's exactly right.
3: I mean, a lot of it is you know along the way you know the line I kind of say even to my crew and how I describe the the cinematographer director of photography relationship with a director is it's the director's playground but hopefully they want me to come in and play in their playground so in other words try to make their ideas better all the best directors I've ever worked with are extremely collaborative they sometimes have a very clear vision but it's such a huge or, or a huge thing to work at this at the level of, of which I've been working right now when it comes to scale of projects. I think any smart director will want to use their creative team that's around them in a very efficient way. Because very much we're specialists in our part of filmmaking. So all the best directors I've worked with has really leveraged that with people.
2: So the thing is that's the whole thing too. You're one of the best People, if somebody wanted to go ahead and talk about how good a director is somebody that you're working with, you're the one that can best say that because you know what kind of things they can handle, what what like what their their patience is. What kind of reality right. and what flexibility will they be able to understand when you're working that's with e- them?
3: That's exactly right. A big part of my job is to really kind of get to know them as people, as artists, as people that have a vision and to pretty much kind of integrate myself into the best way to get the best out of them and to get the best out of myself and my crew. But it really starts at the top. I mean, you really have to have a director that also allows for you to be able to be there for them. Because it's almost like a play of ego sometimes. You don't want to be so into your own self that you're not looking at possibilities, very much like with actors. Uh, you know that's kind of this playful aspect of it, but also yes, I have to. I find there is a part of my job that is managing expectations. But also, the thing is, I get as an, I get as excited as a director into an idea, and I think at the beginning of taking a project, that's kind of what attracts me because I really have tried in my career so far to kind of get excited about things before I decide to do them because I don't think it's servicing. The project, if I'm not going to be 100% committed, and uh, you know these projects are, take so much time to produce at the at the level that you know a lot of audiences want to see, it's very complicated what we do. So you really got to love it. You really have to, and and I, I, it is truly about personality at the core.
2: Now if you have a di- I, I must or cu- you I, I, that's where I want to go to a personality because when yeah. it comes to the directors. You've worked, like I said, uh, without even asking you which directors are, what kind of personality traits they have. Um, Mm. What are the characteristics that you say that, what makes them, the directors, as good as they are? What are the things that they do that they have in common that tells you this person knows what they're doing? They're going to be there doing the right thing on a project and creating great content.
3: No, that's, that's exact. That's a great question too. It's, it's, Bottom line, I think, is there's this one thing I've noticed that really great directors have in common. They enter the project with such a confidence in the vision and language that they want to create for a specific project that they're open-minded. That they actually want people to kind of play again in the sandbox, like I was saying. That, to me, the common trait of the best directors is they're just confident enough that they're open to suggestions they don't see a threatening kind of aspect to that they don't feel and i find that with newer directors that i've worked with because they don't have the years of experience necessarily i always feel a director needs to get beat up at least once early in their career to truly become great you know even even with me you know some of the the worst experiences i've had that i've i've kind of lived through have made me a very A lot stronger creator and a lot more confident in what i do and it's that life journey that really matters so but that commonality to to come back to directors i think it's confidence enough to also be able to trust the people around you so very much when i'm about to take a project deciding if i'm going to take a project i kind of look for that do we actually really on a on a personal note uh, you know, get along. It's like summer camp making a film. You're going to be seeing them way more than your family in, in a day or in a, over six months. And you kind of, I look out for those signs of, will I be able to do my best work in this creative environment? Because it's not just getting the gig, it's how you get it. And that's kind of what I keep saying to people that I talk to about this kind of thing.
2: Now, you know, when you're doing that, the thing is, you get in lockstep with that director. If you're both saying, oh, this is great. This is awesome. I I, I love where we're going to go with this. And you feel like sky's the limit. But then you have to go ahead and be back in the reality and say to the people that are going to back this, the corporate suits, the people that you have to talk to mm-hmm. to fund your project and say, okay, we might go a little over budget and over right. time that we go. And it's like, but it's so important. It's like, we're not Francis Ford Coppola over here, but <laughs> I'm telling you, you have to buy in on this. Like, you have to yes. basically play with the director. I'm guessing are you in the same room having to talk to these suits and explain to them why it's so important to listen give us a little leeway. We're getting we're on to something really good here.
3: Exactly. Well, I, in it, the initial conversations, a lot of it are with producers and directors. I usually will come in. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered
0: Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy.
1: That's ChumbaCasino.com.
3: No purchase necessary. BTW. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. You know, when the the project has been funded, but as you say, I never, no one can escape the suits. It's, it is a creative business, but what's interesting is, is that there's all, at the same time, you might find people that in, in the corporate side of things, that are a little bit more just financially oriented uh, and there are some people within the, the kind of executive ranks. There are some smart people out there that actually are very uh, creative people as well. So, a big part of that at the beginning of any project when we're doing a studio film or, or show is to find those people. And as creative people, because it is a creative business, a lot of times, you know, directors have had and producers have had to pitch. Uh, and it depends. Sometimes I get involved in the pitch. If I've worked like with Sarah Pauly, when she's writing a script, I remember originally she would send me the script that she's writing because she just wanted some, some kind of perspective visually about ideas of how because we have that kind of rapport. But on ma- more major, yeah, which is a really kind of rare thing. But that's why that collaboration has always been really fantastic because she really values what I bring to the process and and really, it's that trust. There is this kind of trust that we have. Um, but it's interesting idea of what you talk about, about how this suits and we have to pitch it to them. I mean, I think any creative pe- pe- people in the film industry shouldn't have... Sh- I don't think it's necessarily uh, kind of a problem to have to pitch to the money people. And in a way, again, it's like me reading a director... You kind of understand that part big part of the process that they never talk about is that part of your job is to kind of be a bit of a psychologist and try to find people that you can really kind of bring to your side because there's politics to everything. So really, my the, the, the bottom line is I tell myself, know this film more than anyone in the room, maybe short of the director, and they will never – be able to argue with you because there's never generally, a question you can't answer.
2: Exactly.
3: Exactly. There's never a question. So in other words, do your homework, understand exactly where you're going. And that generally will give confidence to money people. There's so many times where we're going over budget and they're asking about my light. Cause I, I usually have a lot of lighting and camera equipment. A big portion of the budget comes out of my department because I'm spending a lot of it because these things are expensive. The technology alone is expensive, so they're all, I'm always going to be a target as a cinematographer of, of ways to save money. But I arm myself with facts, and really, it's amazing when you kind of leave it to an executive after you've explained it all eloquently. Hopefully, it's funny how quickly most of them will back down because they don't want to be the one that's not going to give you something that you've really eloquently described because they don't want to be the one that's going to get in trouble and saying, well. Luke asked you for this stuff, but you said no. So there's this kind of dynamic that's created with these people. But I got to say, there are numerous times where I was basically tested, uh, e- even without the director being in the room, because I tend to protect that vision, because I'm very close to the director on a project. But you also have to work with everybody. But man, it was, it's was it been really kind of... I got to say, I've had to kind of really get used to it and to, to kind of talk to the suits, because there's sometimes you have to keep a straight face even with the stupidest questions that are put in front of you and you got to play the game. You got to totally play the game because you could, you could, if you're Ridley Scott, you can get angry because you're Ridley Scott. Nobody's going to screw with you. But if you're just kind of working on a crew you know, it depends really what, you're, what you've done in a lot of ways. But generally, people still want to be treated with respect. Yeah, it's a so, pecking
2: order. Absolutely. And totally, I'll tell you, yeah. it's got to be tough, too, when it's not a big movie uh, banker that's doing this. And you're seeing a lot of these critically acclaimed you know, projects that are being backed by five or six different movie studios that are just putting money into it, hopefully getting to invest and in getting a little piece of the pie. I can only yeah. imagine how many people you have to answer with. But now, I want to move on the resources, because you did mention about what you need to make a project right and Mm -hmm. i don't know this is just a question i would have are you happy the fact that even though we have all this great digital technology that continues to come in front of us and we're having all this technology evolving in front of us? of course are you just glad that we're still using film for projects and not going (laughs) to something else
3: that's that's that is definitely a hot topic these days and and as especially as digital continues Bottom line for me, this is kind of what I feel about that. I would, I want to be able to have as many tools in the toolkit as I possibly can have to be able to tell a specific story. To me, film falls within that. Before we just had film, and then when digital started coming out, it really took over. I mean, it's not just vi- vid- film and, and digital, it's there's... Fifty different kinds of digital cameras, and that re- that recreate images in very different ways, and lenses. There's been an explosion. So, as far as I'm concerned, when I read a script, uh, I'm thinking about, or I'm thinking about all the technology that's out there, and trying to say, and get, in, and basically, when I read a script and I get inspired to use a certain piece of technology to tell a story. That's a really good sign. And that changes with absolutely every movie that I do, because every film script requires its own language to really be the most effective. It's like when people say, hey, Luke, what's your style? I said, I hope I don't have one yet. I hope I am able to step away from myself and to be able to say, okay, this is a period film, let's say. And uh, I really feel that You know, kind of having an image that really cues you back to the old 70s movies is going to be really important to tell you this story. I might say, you know what film I think would be perfect for this project. So just the fact that it's still available, I think, is a really excellent thing, because as a cinematographer, I feel a responsibility to not just impose, you know, one style to every film that I shoot i feel that's my job i need to find what the film demands so having more tools in the toolkit is definitely whether it's shooting on an iphone i I shot a movie on an iphone once it was like five iphones and it was a film about bullying and it was all shot from the point of view of kids so they shot the actors shot the film so that was that and then i shot a film for guy madden He he does these films that are that are harking back to the 19, you know, the early days of cinema. He has a huge cult following, and uh, he shoots them all on, on Super 8, black and white, Bolex, 35, 16. Like, he wants you to feel like you found this old film prints uh, out of a vault. And he's got an amazing following and just an amazingly talented director. So for that project, I needed to become a bit of a method cinematographer is that I had never done that style, but I felt it was so perfect. So black and white film was perfect for that film.
2: Now, So to me, I... Okay, go ahead. Um, forgive Sorry. me. I wanted to ask you, because you're talking about method pieces, and they are talking about... For, when it comes to the visual, for me, yeah. I'm a podcaster all through and through. So audio, I feel like, you know, every project's being done now that needs to satisfy anybody with a $5,000 surround sound system. But I think... <laughs> Audio is second. is It's always so secondary now. I think of right. movies like The French Connection, The Godfather, Oscar-winning movies with impeccable sound and great sound, like sound effects, sound everything. And I think it's some parts. It's just, it's just so important because sometimes, I mean, there's a great story out there, and sometimes I cannot hear these people when they're talking if they're whispering mm. or what. Get the microphone closer to them, please.
3: <laughs> Yeah no you're absolutely right I found sound in, in cinema has always gotten especially in production always they always have to fight to carve out their part in it because you know the the old thing is is that you can always replace sound in film but you can never replace the image but I have to tell you I don't agree with that I mean 50% of a film experience is 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 sound design So I agree with you completely and ironically, Sound has gone digital a decade before the video or the digital image capture came to the forefront. Audio has been digital way longer. So in a lot of ways, they've been very much ahead of the game just because of the amount of data that it requires to have high quality digital sound is still going to be proportionately a lot less than capturing an 8K digital image. That's the world we live in now. Uh, But it takes a tremendous large amount of processing power to capture. You're capturing, you know, uh, 32 megapixels at 24 frames a second on these cameras now. It takes a huge amount of, it's really the computing power needed to catch up. But that, you know, I totally agree. I mean, it's it's something that when, even as a cinematographer on a film set, if a sound recordist is having a hard time getting a boom in or... My lighting is causing a shadow uh, on a wall, which makes him not being or her be able to get in with the mic to get that good audio. Um, I, I I change my lighting because I really do believe they need. It's a team effort, and but you're right. I think this whole notion or ADR, autom- uh, you know, uh, a dialogue replacement. A lot of, of people say, hey, we could just replace the dialogue later and just put all the fans to create wind over it. But it does change performance. And actors tend to not like replacing their audio because uh, some of them do, because if they think that they didn't perform very well for a scene, they get another kind of another chance at it. But they literally sit in a booth and, re- and read their lips and repeat it. I still don't think it's quite as immediate as it is. So the technology to manipulate audio seems to be a lot grander or or the again, it's it's a lot easier to kind of manipulate it than although I gotta say these days uh, those kind of tool sets are coming to to images. You can do a lot of stuff to images now. But that doesn't still right. Negate you know what? You need to, to lean on something. the
2: director and tell him, "Listen, if we got to do another take to get it right, and you put some more confidence in that actor, they're doing it right. You're the yep. director. You say you go for it. You don't need to go and put this person in a booth. Let's get it done right." Yep.
3: Yeah, the good directors do do that. They do realize, "Hey, man, I don't want to ADR this really dramatic scene where." it's a hugely emotional thing and that's part of directing is making those decisions and you know even as a cinematographer like if i look at the sound person on the set and they know they didn't the director will say okay let's move on you know i'll look at them and say let's go again man sound didn't wasn't really happy let's do it again (laughs) and generally you know you kind of attack it as a uh, as a group in a way and again hopefully you're in a set that that's allowed again it it really changes depending on who you're working with. So I tend to gravitate towards the the same kind of personality. So, uh, but you're right. Audio has definitely gotten the short end of the stick. But it all it is we are our worst and own worst enemies when it comes to uh, that problem. But hopefully you're on a set that a lot of people care about that. No, I, certainly exactly. I certainly do. I certainly do.
2: More with Luke Montpellier coming up. I want to talk to you about. TV store online, right now, they are selling St. Paddy's Day clothing. You could use the word lucky at checkout and get some great stuff. So you could get Patty's Pub shirts. You could have Bazinga shirts done in green. You could get Green Lantern shirts. You could say, have green shirts that say, oh, snap, so much more. You could shop right now, get your St. Patrick's Day stuff because you want to wear something different, you just can't wear the same old green stuff that you wear. Maybe you're a little bit of the, you know, the the comic, you know, geek kind of person, and you want to show off that geekiness right there at the bar or at a party. You want to be able to show something off. You just want don't want to wear green, wear the same stuff everybody else does. No, you want to look different. The Green Lantern stuff looks great. You want to buy one of those shirts. You want to buy a Green Lantern ring. You want to buy, you want to buy a Green Man shirt. You know, Always Sunny. Green Eggs and Ham T-shirt. How about a MASH 4077 shirt? How about a Pied Piper shirt? You know, Silicon Valley, right? How about dressing up like a Green Power Ranger? You can do all this, but you need to look right when you go out for St. Patty's Day. And you know you could look goofy because you're getting drunk. So look right. Be the... So the star of the party, wear some Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle stuff, wear Aquaman shirt, but wear something green, and wear something cool that's green, and go to TV store online through the sponsor page at creativenotcorporate.com slash sponsors. You got to go do it. creativenotcorporate.com slash sponsors, look for TV store online, and go get you some green today. Now, I want to get on to talking about actual projects and, and the fact that, listen, we talk about the money that's getting put into this can we cut corners can we shoot in places where we might get a little bit more spend and maybe we get a little bit more help for ourselves so a lot of projects i noticed they don't want to say it but you know you see a lot of things being done in bc in canada you know uh-huh. up north so vancouver is a hotbed for a lot of projects i remember the killing i remember you know, several, mm-hmm. a, lot, a lot of like crime uh, dramas like things like that love shooting up there so i'm wondering since you do live in canada i mean do you do take a lot of advantage of a lot of film and tv projects that get shot up there given the affordability
3: oh absolutely i mean for for my career i felt it really- with the
2: lucky land slots, you can get
1: lucky just about anywhere A woo a hand clap or a high-fiver. I kind of like the high-five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At ChumbaCasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at ChumbaCasino.com.
0: No purchase necessary. VDW for void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.
3: Really important to keep my ties to can that I, even though I spent many years in L.A. shootings, sometimes i kind of split my time between the two but having a residency in canada is definitely a positive thing because as you say films a lot that will go or not that leave los angeles and hollywood to go shoot elsewhere it's to stretch the dollar right now you have a thing with canada where you can benefit from the exchange rate that's very high the u.s dollar is extremely high you get almost right now it's 25 percent more on the dollar and on top of that places like Vancouver and Toronto or Montreal, and even other provinces in the middle of the country, you can get up to 50, 60% total back on your labor. So that's kind of something that studios and people can't ignore. The only thing, though, is you still have to make sure you can shoot your film in a creative way, in the proper way. Uh, Even though these tax incentives are there, if you're, you know, if you're shooting a science fiction film and you need massive studios to do it, like Star Trek is shooting in Toronto right now, if we didn't have those studios in Toronto, they just booked them for the next five years because they want to do five seasons. If they didn't have those studios, that show wouldn't be here. You still have to have an infrastructure. So definitely for me as a Canadian cinematographer, definitely helps having ties here because at the same time, that means they can get a large portion of what they pay me back, but also uh, I also know the city. I know, like this is where I kind of started in Toronto, is where I started my career and I still uh, live half the year. So I that's why I consciously kept ties here, just to be able to and they've shot huge movies in Canada. So they're a point, but and, and it's interesting. Right now the dollars, the stretching of the dollar is simply because I think the demands of audiences have increased so much with what they expect in the movie theaters or even on television now. There's no dividing line, I find, between shooting and producing a television show and doing a huge budget feature. Uh, You look at Game of Thrones, that's an HBO cable show. That's bigger than a lot of big budget movies that are out there right now. So having that as a bar makes the whole industry have to compete way more. Therefore, they're, they know they have to spend more money on the screen. So that's why they're coming to Canada or Australia, whoever has the best tax credit, because really you can't get away with badly produced shows anymore. So as a cinematographer, it's very exciting because most shows I'm going to be asked to do, there is suddenly an eye for photography. People are shooting a movie every week now because people don't want to talk about old network shows anymore where the lighting was flat, where it was all about the writing. It, was, it wasn't It was about that, you know. Uh, my wife and daughter were watching, um, Who? what was it? Uh, it was that show in the 90s. Uh, I forget what it was.
2: If you can give me a name Girls. or something like that. Gil- probably-
3: Gilmore, Gilmore
2: Girls. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And on
3: Gilmore Girls, it was interesting. I'd walk by and it was all, it's a great show. But it was definitely not a show that used photography in what I bring to tell their story. It was all about the writing. It was all about the actors. And it was like a sitcom. I guess I equate it to a sitcom. Those days are over because I really think people are demanding to watch a little movie every week. Therefore, it's exciting for people like me now. There's a bit of a what they call the golden age of television right now where there's a lot of content. The Netflixes, the Amazons of the world they they've got huge budget shows because they're trying to literally steal people from HBO, and you know for me working on Stars on Counterpart it was no exception. It was very much like we were making a huge movie, and it was ten episodes, and the the style was very much designed, very much like I would do uh, make a film. So to me that was kind of the the, the area I love to live in, but. You're right. I mean, the demands now, there's so much content. Everyone's fighting for eyes. you got to have something that is striking so that when somebody is flipping through or looking at a splash page on Netflix, they got to be able to be drawn to it.
2: And not only that, when you have programming that are on those on-demand platforms, and you're talking about like, first of all, there are great shows coming out of Canada. When I see Continuum, Flashpoint you did, and then I see Bad Blood, I can't find that show for the life of me. I want to watch that.
3: With right, uh, Kim right. Coates.
2: It looks amazing, but I, I don't know if it's available anywhere. I don't think it's available on Netflix, but then you look there, then you look at the UK with Black Mirror, and oh, Luther, and just amazing yeah. shows over there. And oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really, it's competition that you're going after, but it's like you said, all those shows well shot, and so much good content coming out of Canada. It's just, it's crazy, but it's really, it's, it's tough for you to make sure that you just can't put out any swill out there, and so...
0: No, I if it's
2: not good original programming that's being shot well and really giving you something, you know, compelling, it's a reboot of something else. Let's just remake right. One Day at a Time <laughs> with a different cast or Fuller House or something like that. Yeah. Come on, so
3: you no, know, I know <laughs> there is that culture right now. Of, I mean, I. I was involved in remaking Rocky Horror Picture Show. Tell me that was not a blasphemous thing to a lot of people.
2: Yeah, how did but, you uh, – <laughs> I, I mean, is that – and A Christmas Story and Hairspray? <laughs> I don't – listen, I they might be intended well, but don't you know you're going against history when you're doing that?
3: Oh, absolutely. You know, it's interesting. With Rocky Horror, we had – the original producer, Lou Adler, produced the remake. And to me, it was interesting because I remember talking to Kenny Ortega. He did the high school musical films. A very talented uh, choreographer-director. And I had never done a musical before. So that was the draw for me. But also, I remember actively having discussions with the production team and even Laverne Cox, which played Frankenfurter in that remake, and saying, we're not remaking this we're restaging it like a theater show because there's a lot, there's a huge theater run uh, of, uh, like Rocky Horror has been on the stage. It was on the stage first. Jim Sharman put it out as a play first. And there's there's reimaginings of that play that have happened on the stage for years. So the idea was, is that Lou said, I don't want to remake my original because we know we're going to get killed. We just can't do it. Let's redo, let's do our version of, because if you look at that film, let's say it was a TV movie. It was very shot, very theatrically. It was very campy. It was very. It was not meant to be the original, but there was a bit of that original story and all the music. There's a few new songs in the show, in the movie, and to me, it was just fun to live in the world of the musical as a, as a DP, as a cinematographer. But we were never trying. I can say this for a fact. But that didn't stop the fact that I knew people would love it or hate it. It was literally a musical version, a true musical version like High School Musical of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. We rehearsed two months just with all the – Kenny basically choreographed over two months and I was sitting right next to him for the whole time. I'd never prepped a film like that. And to me, it was the adventure of trying something new. But I know what you're saying. It's when – I remember, remember the uh, the Gus Van Sant remake of Psycho that was shot by shot. Remember that a bunch of years ago that oh, came yeah. out. To me, that was the worst idea in cinema history.
2: Oh no, no, I'm sorry. You last year, last yeah. year's Dirty Dancing remake on ABC. Right. Oh my right. God, that was. I wanted to throw something at the screen. Right. That was the worst. Uh, you it's, cannot you yeah. that's, that's more blasphemous than anything else at least for rocky horror you had very good singers you had good performers you know that that, that fit the role and you had some throwbacks to the original so I uh, that was the one I thought that actually felt good. I, I felt okay about it because right. I thought Laverne Cox put a nice twist to it. <laughs> I didn't think it was that right. bad. And the problem is, it's on a network. Pro- it's a network program. It's like right, right. this won't work unless you put it on, say, like an HBO or Stars. I think if you put it on that well, platform, pay TV would have done much better. I I, I think it was I agree. Just, it was I agree it was panned because it was on network TV, and there's such yes. an expectation that you just can't reach it.
3: No, exactly. I mean, there would there is a version of that movie. That is completely not tongue in cheek and taken seriously. Like it, w- I almost was. W- would have been fun to do that kind of version of the film where it's completely off, not even close to it. Uh, and listen, it was an experiment. But I got to tell you, everyone knew, hey man, let's just do this. But we don't know if people are gonna like it or not. But that doesn't mean you don't try. I mean, it's funny how Kenny uh, had. He was with Michael Jackson when he. Uh, he was on his tour. Yeah, he was on his tour when he passed away. So I got to tell you, for him, he's talked to people about this. It was a true journey of trying things he had kind of produced or had created with Michael in his concert. There's a lot of nods to a lot of things they came up together for the concert. We did a we did a few of those things. Laverne Cox coming down on a crane. Uh, frankenfurter being introduced into that that was something that michael was going to do in his live show so it was just kind of an interesting uh thing to talk to kenny about because he was kind of exercising some demons in a lot of ways and so for for a creator i mean an audience might not really care about that stuff but at the same time for him as a as a creator you hope that honesty that what he's bringing even though it's campy fun It'll find a new audience. That's really, I think, what these remakes are doing. But I agree, as a purist myself, uh, you know, it's truly an experiment. But sometimes you got to challenge yourself and try different things as now, a creative person. So Right.
2: Now, yeah. in terms of projects, you've worked on the television that have not maybe gone as well as expected. There was Damien on Annie, Battle Creek on yeah. CBS, incorporated <laughs> that was on Sci-Fi, which Matt Damon and Ben Affleck were a part of. <laughs> Each one and done. So talk to me about right. this disconnect that I felt like where yeah. it is a normal thing where, you know, you get showrunners and you get shows that might have a good idea, potentially good projects. But, you know, these days there's no chance of the corporations give you enough room to grow.
3: Yeah, you're absolutely right. Here's another one to add to the list. Uh, Lucky Lucky 7, produced by Steven Spielberg himself, uh, was cancelled after two episodes and we shot eight. Now, just wanted to add that one in.
2: That yes. one was the
3: biggest mystery to me. How much, there was so much money put in. I guess this is what I think. Uh, based on, especially the reason why I mentioned Lucky 7, because there there is a corporate culture that, Creators will never be exposed to. I mean, there are deals, there are sometimes output deals for four or five projects by certain showrunners. So there's a lot of politics, I feel, behind the scenes that almost sometimes don't have anything to do with the show that's produced. You could have the most rate, you know, like a show like Incorporated was really well loved. I thought the ratings were decent too yeah. and it was really it was a show that was extremely relevant because it was the a cautionary tale of near future destroying the planet and corporations rule the world and the Monsantos of the world are kind of the, the hold the power
2: me, following. I can't, yeah following. I can
3: I can't see that but I guess I can't even understand it, but all I can bring it down, boil it down to is these these corporate deals in the background that truly are very much blind to that kind of stuff. Maybe they had an output. I really am not privy to all the details of why, but I just don't, I mean, it's interesting how these boardrooms in networks and studios, primarily networks, if you're doing film studios, they have a very specific agenda they're trying to fill, and they greenlight projects based on certain agendas, and sometimes they have nothing to do with how well it's doing. And, I, and unfortunately, I had a string of those <laughs> because I get seduced by the project. I think, oh, this, I usually try to pick projects that are a bit socially conscious. They're at least trying to, to say something about the world on a minor level or a major level. But sometimes that's not enough. Uh, and it's it's very hard to crack why that happens. All I know is, there's a lot of stuff happening that none of us know about that are behind closed doors and their bottom lines and specific agendas. And they think you might fill that with a show. Uh, and and sometimes you don't in the way they want. I mean, Glenn Mazzara uh, was, you know, he worked on The Walking Dead and he created he created Damien based on The Omen. That was probably one of the better television experiences I've had because he was he was treating the film like a film director, a showrunner. And. He was defending choices and asking us because a lot of times you get notes from the network saying ah this is not quite the way we want it or it's too dark or it's too this uh, you know it's it's more they don't have the necessarily eye they're just looking at a viewership and on Glenn's show none of those notes made it to the creative people because he knew in order to do anything great on television is you got to shield your creative team and just kind of encourage them so they don't start questioning what they're doing. So as far as a creative force, Glenn, I thought had the best attitude because it's very easy when you've got the corporate structure going down your neck saying, oh, it's too much like this, or this performance is not right. Or, oh, we got to do this. It's really you you can't flinch, but very few people have the strength to not flinch at the corporate thing. You basically have to look at it in the eye and say, No, I'm sorry, we're gonna do this or I'm not gonna do it anymore. And sometimes people don't take that well, right?
2: And I'll tell you, Glenn Z- to- you also mentioned for Walking Dead. Also, one of my favorite shows he was a part of was The Shield with Sean Ryan. Still, hey, exactly. I don't That's even true. know. Hey, it's kind of hard to compare that show to a lot of different things. But here's another yeah. thing i got to yeah. ask you then. And-
1: it is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A Woohoo, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com.
0: No purchase necessary. DTW, Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
2: I, I'll go probably one more question here. Yeah. Is, of uh, when it comes to which channels, green light a project do you get a little worried when it is a sci-fi that doesn't really give you a lot of time to bank on a project as opposed to like say an fx or i don't know right. or an HBO or showtime no absolutely
3: i think i think very much depending on who greenlights the project like if wg
2: in america comes on you're gonna be like oh crap <laughs> <laughs> i'm They're sorry i'm, I'm still <laughs> mad over outsiders which i thought was a fantastic show and they let yeah. that go in two seasons it was just that was ridiculous
3: yeah Well, I rest my case, right? It's that kind of corporate culture. You're going, what the hell's going on, guys? I mean, people love this show. Like, what are you talking about? What you know? And that's the kind of thing that that. uh, But definitely, like people at Showtime, I you know, when I worked with them, you could tell there's a lot of smart people in the room. They're just so creative. People at HBO, like it's no accident that they're at the top of their game. It's because the teams of executives they've assembled. I don't know them all. I know some. They're just really smart people and they're fil- I I I this is what I call it. They, they all have a bit of Fellini in them, which is yeah. a way to say they're filmmakers. They actually but they at the same time they understand that they're very they they leave the filmmakers make the films and the TV shows the way they want them to make it. So they're smart enough to understand we can give notes, but you got to go and make your thing. And that's kind of the corporate culture at these networks. And the thing is, a lot of everyone wants to be like them, but unfortunately, like on Battle Creek was a great show, but again, it's one of those shows that lasted a year. Vince wrote the pilot. David ran the show. Because, Gave you a uh, bad
2: time slot too, Sunday nights. They,
3: well, that's it. So they had, you know, they probably had. They had, hey man, Breaking Bad is huge. Uh, we've Sony had purchased a pilot from from uh to call battle creek that was on the shelf for years apparently so david if, you know vince was gonna direct the pilot but then he went off and did better call saul because that was his thing and so david took on a lot of the responsibilities on that show but then the culture in the corporate hey it's a v- vince gilligan project we gotta <laughs> we gotta make this like breaking bad that's what's yeah, really yeah. kind of selling well but the thing is on a corporate culture level, they didn't know how to be HBO. No. They were just they were just more network. Therefore, that's why I think they wanted it, but they also couldn't alienate the audience that had been, you know, a slightly older audience that they had. I think it was CBS the show. So they had to kind of NCIS was their 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 viewership. No, and so, every show
2: on CBS looks the same. I really yeah, I can't even find yeah. the difference. SWAT, right. CSI, I can't see the difference. Yeah.
3: And that's the thing. People are, t- I think, in my theory, is people are tired of that. Yes. People are tired. I've had, a, I, I've had in Canada, we have this, the, this uh, network called the CBC. It's the Canadian Broadcasting Correct. Corporation. And I literally last week had uh, a meeting with one of the executives, an old friend that, you know, I know a film director that introduced me to her. And she said, can we go have a coffee? And we went out. And she goes, what would it take for you to be want to work on more CBC shows? Because it's Canadian, <laughs> and it's the same kind of thing. It's this whole CBS syndrome. Everything looks the same. Right. And I was really honest. I had nothing to do. I go, listen, because we, we're having a hard time selling to 24 to 54 bracket. And I go, well, that's because you're not making a movie. Every week. <laughs> that's what these people want at that level. They want to be amazed. They want to like, oh, my God, this amazing acting scripts. So if you water it down and say, I don't want to alienate my audience, though, but we want more of that, it's never going to work. And I think that's why the networks are scrambling, because the way they're structured, they don't understand. Uh, they, they don't understand they might have to restructure like uh, a Showtime or an HBO. But it boils down to the people they have.
2: Right. Showtime you-
3: and HBO, I th- it, they have very small staffs, I think, compared to some of these big motherships. I call Disney the mothership. Or the Death Star. And they don't
2: understand is that (laughs) the, the, the critical acclaim comes from everything that comes off of HBO or Showtime or Stars. I mean, just... I mean, half the shows that I look for... I mean... It's a point. The only shows I feel are appointment viewing at all or are Sunday nights when I want to watch The Deuce or Homeland or Big Little Lies or Yeah you know, or yep. Shameless or what have you. Like just great shows. And and you know what? Some of the shows are adapted from something else, but they do the right thing by it. They all know it's creative, it's good, and and I think well, you're never gonna yes there's the constraints of language and and what you can do that's not allowed on the air if i were a network tv i would just say listen go to live sports that you have under contract or put more reality shows out there and that's how you fill your time but quit with these scripted dramas you're just not doing any favors for anyone
3: yeah for sure there's definitely a shift that is happening in the next decade with the the standard model you know uh it's you know I'm watching Altered Carbon on on uh, Netflix. I like it. They, and they got front, full front male nudity even on cable. I hadn't yes. seen that, but it was it meant something. It's a little bit. It's part of the narrative. But they weren't shying away. So to me, the idea is not the fact that I want to go to cheap stuff like that, but it was all based on a great story and a great script. And knowing they could go to places and kind of anywhere they wanted. Kind of keeps you leaning in and going, you know what? I'm not going to get anything watered down, and it's exactly what you're saying. Things get watered down because you don't want to alienate, you know, over-the-air audience or a standard cable audience, and I respect that. But definitely, the excitement I feel is is really dwindling, and I and and you know, I feel for these places too because I would avoid network television before this kind of dawn, this new age arrived, uh, I would just say, I want to do my indie films and I want to, but independent film has gotten hit so hard. Uh, I've just been lucky enough to kind of connect, uh, on some of these cable shows. And, and the thing is without my film, my, my independent film experience, I would not have been considered for those shows. So to me from the inside, you kind of understand, yeah, it's truly what they want. They want a movie. And I want to watch a movie. I mean, Altered Carbon is so beautifully done, and and no and, and no expense is done, and it's such a great concept.
2: It's like what Blade Runner is supposed to be.
3: Exactly. That's <laughs> exactly right. Exactly. No. Exactly. Because these are not just kind of like eye candy things, but they mean something. That's what I love about Blade Runner, especially the new one. I got to say, I love the new one. I'm a purist, like anybody else. It was good. The
2: fact it was. That,
3: yeah. Yeah. I mean, the idea that Denis Villeneuve brought in all these kind of uh, again, environmental ideas, you know, the fact that, you know, the world is pretty much dead and the idea that, you know, Tyrell's uh, competition takes him over and he creates synthetic, uh, you know, uh, proteins to keep the world alive because the world is dying. Little things like that, I think, really kind of make it relevant to today. Uh, but I know what you mean. I mean, it's uh, the, the original is very hard to to beat. But again, I see it very much as a different film. Like Denis says, uh, you know, he said, it's not a blade, it's not Blade Runner. It's, it's in the world, but it's another film. Uh, but yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's an interesting thing. The, the world of network TV now it's, it's, but you know, like a show like this is us, I got to say I'm addicted to it. My wife and daughter watched this is us on, I think it's NBC, right? right. One of the networks. Yes. yes. And I got to say, that's the closest thing to, kind of uh, a cable type show that right. I've seen on a network, on a broadcast network.
2: Oh, I mean, this, there's, there's still yeah. a couple of good hits. I mean, you also did some on Good Doctor. That, that's a breakout yeah. hit here. I mean, it's one of those shows I'm like, yeah. well, ABC finally found a hit. I'm like, good for them. Yeah. They can't live off yeah. of Grey's Anatomy forever. So, No, um, exactly.
3: Now, but go ahead. Sir. Oh, I, I just had
2: two more questions for you. This yeah. is huge. So last week on this show, I talked about the the wonderful corporate thing that was done about the Cloverfield paradox and how they promoted it one time on a Bowl ad, instead of rolling it out in theaters, they put it on Netflix and Netflix paid $40 million or $50 million for a $40 million budgeted film. What do you think about something like that happening? If that had to happen to a film that you worked on.
3: Right, right. So you're saying it was meant for the theater, but they put it
2: on Netflix. It was a, yeah, it was a sequel to Cloverfield. It was awful. And they said, well, Netflix is willing to pony up the buck, so we'll take it and and make a win and and profit from it.
3: Right. Uh, You know, I'm curious if it's because they knew it wasn't that good. Like, it's weird because Netflix right now is so well financed. They are literally buying themselves into the market. Like, they are just, when you hear that, I think Altered Carbon is like $200 million or or something crazy like that. It's expensive. Like House of Cards was $120 million for the first season, and that's a drama. It's not even a science fiction show. They literally are so well-financed, I think it's becoming—and I think they're truly trying to attract people like J.J. J. Abrams and Bad Robot, his company— to become, you know, they just signed on with the Glee creator. I forget his name, uh, but they just signed a huge deal for $100 million with him. They just earmarked $500 million in Canada for just content to be produced here. That's never happened in the history of this country. Ryan Murphy. it's It's what you mean by Glee, yeah. That's right, that's right. So to me, I think there's a true strategy to take over the industry by them. So to me, having... The Cloverfield film and JJ's company attached is not surprising, because they're trying to get that kind of viewership to the to their streaming service. I mean, quite frankly, I'm I'm a sucker and, and a romantic like a lot of people for the big screen. I love seeing projects on the big screen. I would always choose, especially for a movie like Cloverfield, the the new Cloverfield film. But at the same time, I'd rather it go to on my 100-inch television screen in my screening room at home, then it not have anywhere to go and that it just tanks and that, uh, that distributors just kind of shelve it uh, in a lot of ways. It could be horrible, but that is true. I mean, there was something with Netflix that they were producing so much content, you start watering down your brand, in my opinion. So, again, I just don't think there's enough eyeballs for everybody to watch everything. So there's this huge competition. Uh, but the idea. What did you say that they spent fifty million on an ad? Is that what you said? Well, no, the movie. The bill? movie
2: Netflix spent fifty million dollars on the movie itself, and they yeah. spent five million dollars on one Super Bowl ad to promote it. Right, right, right. But the, the idea did, was Netflix saw it as a way of, hey, you know, the commercial we put out there is a commercial for Netflix, not just for the movie.
3: Well, that's exactly right. Yeah, so that, I understand but I, that,
2: but it's still yeah. it's that's pretty cheesy. If you're one of the people that are as a content creator, you're saying this is how you treat our movie like a Van Damme movie or yeah. Adam Sandler yeah. or Will Smith, really? Well, Come it's on. interesting.
3: <laughs> it's interesting. How do and you have to ask yourself the question as as fans of media and TV and movies, how is Netflix perceived in the world? I still think they're on their way, but it sounds like their image is potentially, they're trying to change their image, but I'm wondering if it's working on us. Like, there are some pretty good shows on Netflix now.
2: It's enough. Not I think as a consumer, I have Netflix a, a subscriber a subscription. Yeah. I think there's enough programming to sustain the nine ninety nine a month. There's about a good ten twelve programs to follow along with that yeah. I really enjoy. So that tells me right there. And by the way, as for yeah. Ryan Murphy, if you ever listens to this, don't you dare leave FX and Fox. Okay. I love what you're <laughs> doing with American Horror Story, American Crime Story, Nip Tuck. Right. I even enjoyed right. Scream Queens, even though it wasn't the best in the world. <laughs>
3: I think he's. I, from what I read, again, I read in the media. I think he's going to still continue those shows with with those networks. I think it's just a new deal. But you never know if he's got a new deal. Will he start moving on? But hopefully he doesn't. Right? There's a huge fan base, as you say, for all that stuff.
2: Moving on uh, is is yes. leads me into my last question with you, big. This one be ready for this one. All right. <laughs> there are other cinematographers that you can be you can basically be recognized in the same vein with Barry Sonnenfeld, the Coen brothers. They went and directed. Would that be something that you, would you ever take the plunge to start directing your own films?
3: That's, that is a good question because after I've been doing this for about 25 years now and I'm loving every day still, but absolutely. I mean there to say that I wouldn't be interested in directing if the right project came around, Absolutely. Because to me, you spend enough time uh, in in creating, in aiding and creating somebody's vision, you kind of start learning. I've learned from a lot of great, without even uh, trying, I've had the fortune of being able to kind of witness a lot of fantastic techniques with the directors that I've worked with. From working with actors, with shooting technique, with how they move the camera. I mean, that's the beautiful thing about being a cinematographer is you're able to be involved in, you know, very intimately with a director. So, I mean, there's Wally Pfister right now that shot all of Christopher Nolan's films. He did uh, that movie Transcendence, whether you like it or not. He still moved on to a fairly major motion picture. Uh, I don't know if I've seen him shooting lately. It seems like I don't know him, but it seems like Nolan believed in him enough to be able to. Uh, produce a film that he shot, because again, I think you, when you get along very well with these directors, especially Nolan and Zack Snyder's and they're, they have kind of a brand now they have film companies. They, they produced very much like Fincher does, you know? Uh, And then you have PT Anderson that shoots his last film himself. Uh, But, and he, I know I've seen, I've heard podcasts with him where he said, you know, I shot my new movie because I basically have always wanted to be involved in being a like a filmmaker in the true sense where you're behind the camera where you're lighting the film and that to me is i understand that idea because whether you're taking care of a part of a a project that is being directed by someone else you're still exposed to all these great things so like again in the spirit of what i said before that everyone should have a bit of fellini in them i certainly have it in me i feel like i do so if the right project came i would love to do it Despite that, I'm still very much having a good time collaborating, and, uh, you know, it's like a director. I mean, I think you you should direct stuff that you feel speaks to you, whether it's a huge commercial film, a Marvel movie, or it's, you know, uh, you, uh, like, The Florida Project. Like, I... I love. I would love to work on something that has, again, a bit of social consciousness to it because that's just the kind of person I am. That's the project that I try to search for. So the answer is yes. I certainly would be open to it, uh, and uh, it happens sometimes. There's been a lot of DPs that have moved on.
2: And I can only imagine where there's might be just a point where maybe there's a screenwriter or a book or something that will call to you and say, you know what? This is where I start This is where I start my directorial debut with. This is it.
3: That's it. That's it. And exactly. It has to be that. That voice needs to be, I think, very clear. And uh, I guess I haven't found it yet. But as I mature and get older, maybe that kind of eye and that ear will expand. And uh, I'll be more conscious of it. I mean, I've had producers that have talked to me about, hey, you should really consider getting into directing. And I'm like, uh, that's really gracious of you to say, because sometimes it's your colleagues that sometimes need to kind of bring that up with you. And uh, so that there's been some rumbling. So you never know. You might see my name on something.
2: <laughs> I hope so. It would be really yeah. great to see. So if anybody wants to go and follow Luke Montpellier, uh, you can. obviously there's an IMDB that's loaded with a lot of projects that you've done. Uh, I see that your Twitter is the same in the name. So it's L-U-C-M-O-N-T-P-E-L-L-I-E-R. And also look for the same name, .com. That's correct.
3: That's the website. Same on Instagram, same on Facebook. I have a little Facebook page just to update people. And uh, yeah, I am doing the social media. Uh, That is the world we live in. I've been enjoying Instagram a lot. I I post a lot of uh, uh, shots from film sets and and things that i see so no thank you oh
2: fantastic hey yeah. look thank you so much for making time i really enjoyed this a lot so oh. i got the insight i was looking for out of this i feel <laughs> fulfilled from this interview so um <laughs> thank you for having I me always, you know, it's been a great conversation thank you and I, I will keep the door open if we ever have the chance to go and do this again
3: absolutely anytime it's All been right. a real pleasure thanks for having me
2: thank you and there goes award-winning cinematographer Luke Montpellier here on the Creative Not Corporate Podcast. Let's continue on movies for a few little bit more because Black Panther, once again, just killing it. The second fastest domestic release to make $500 million. Already $430 million domestically. It's already running over like $700 million so far. $700 million worldwide. In just the second weekend, I watched Game Night this week, which did pretty well. Seventeen million bucks in its first week. Peter Rabbit in the third week, twelve million dollars, up to seventy-one million total. Annihilation start out the week. Started off this weekend bad, $11 million, and it has a $40 million budget. Is it going to make it? Natalie Portman, poor thing. Oh. 50 Chase Free, number five, $55 million budget, and it's broken it. $89 million so far, $7 million this week. Jumanji continues to make some big money, $5 million this week. Total gross right now domestically, $387 million. On a $90 billion budget. They're banking. We already talked about that. Rounding out the rest. fifteen, seventeen, 17, the Paris. Greatest showman. Every day. An early man. So, Game Night was. You have to understand this. Jason Bateman, for whatever it is. He's a reliable. Main. Headlining comic star. For whatever it is. He doesn't do anything else right now these days, but for what it's worth, he's just been a star that's always been around, and for the longest time, you know, there's always the clicks that are out there that will do movies together, and for whatever it is, Jason Bateman just has a thing for always being able to be the guy that at banks in box office. He does pretty well. He's got a, good, a pretty good track record. I mean, had Office Christmas Party was the last one I saw his, and then what was there before that? There was, you know, the, the Horrible Bosses movies, which did okay. But he's done pretty well for himself. Now, the other thing that also helped out in this movie was you had Rachel McAdams. Who, you know, you ever have those those actors and actresses that you just you just like them? They just they just know how to be so likable on camera. And I remember Wedding Crashes, That's what I felt about her because she just, you know, that character getting married, you just, you, you see how much you liked about her. She wasn't the mean girl, the anti-mean girl in every other movie that she basically does. But it's not just that. And those some of those roles, she's just plays real, I mean, approachable and cool. And I just it's like that's the kind of woman I want to be with. That's exactly how she relates. And she just she is the everyday girl. She's the girl next door. Has that whole thing going on for her. And not only that, she does great movies. I mean, let me just mention I did love her in spotlight. And I thought she would, you know, effectively good in Doctor Strange for what part does she have? So every time she's in a movie, I'm always going to pay attention to her because she usually picks good movies and she's a really good actress. Really good. You know, pick what you want, but she's a really good actress, so I like her a lot. And Jason Bateman's just good. He just, he, he gets it. He's got that dry, dark, funny. This movie definitely had some dark humor to it, a little bit of seriousness to it. You had one of the characters from Breaking Bad playing a cop that was fantastic, Jesse Plemons. I had to go look him up on IMDB. He was Todd in Breaking Bad, and he was Ed Blomquist in Fargo. Fantastic character. I don't know what it is about that guy, but he's really good, and he played funny right to the T, which was really fun. And also, you had Michael C. Hall, who we never see anymore, Dexter, We haven't seen Dexter in a long time. He plays the Bulgarian, this big villain at the end, and he's great, and it fits the whole movie. Jeffrey Wright's in it. It's a really good cast. It's a very good movie, and it also plays a little bit different because it's the whole murder mystery kind of thing, which you see in the trailers, but then you have some points where they do some really cool part of inside a house where they do some really cool camera work, which you'll catch into this, where you just have to watch it for yourself. It's definitely a little different. It's definitely funny, and you know the suspense and the whole like that feeling of like everything keeps going wrong keeps going on this it was just really well done and for them you know i got to give credit worth credits too for the movie 84% like it 81% it's fresh on the rotten tomatoes meter i followed that pretty extensively and it did a great job i really enjoyed it it was good and they did a hell of a job it was a very good movie i'd definitely go say go watch it in the theaters It's an A for me, an A for game night. Now, I'm seeing a couple of movies that's coming up this weekend that I'm going to go watch. There is Death Wish and Red Sparrow. Now, Death Wish, I don't know why, but everybody wants to go ahead and really just destroy this movie for what it's worth on the tomato meter. Now, if you didn't know, let me just explain it to you. It's the story of The Vigilante. Okay, originally the role was portrayed by Charles Bronson in 1974, and a tremendous movie because it was just really gory, violent. If you like those old school movies, that was Charles Bronson when he became the vigilante. He was Paul Kersey, the guy that he loses his daughter and his wife to robbers that rape and yeah, they raped and killed first the mother. They raped the daughter and then they killed her and he comes out for revenge and he will do whatever it takes to get revenge back. Not only for that, but also for other people getting wronged. So Charles Bronson goes for this whole thing. Vincent Gardenia plays the detective Ochoa in a really great role. I mean, that's what was just such a really cool movie. It's a cult classic. And it was, it was just, it was Charles Bronson and that stare, that scowl on his face. When you saw him pull out, will be the big freaking gun and shooting people down. Well, somebody thought 45 years later, let's just bring this movie back. Was that a good idea? Well, I mean, they decided to bring it back. The story was really interesting the one that was originally told. It was based on a book. And then same thing happens here, and Bruce Willis plays this role. I don't know if he plays the exact same role as Paul Kersey, but I know they do a few things to change it up. Now, they've put a lot of money into this. This is the thing. This movie and Red Sparrow, they spent a lot on promotion. I've seen trailers going back for Death Wish going back to October. Same thing with Red Sparrow. They've gone at least six months on promoting these movies. And for Death Wish, it was a movie that we all kind of said, wow, they're going to reboot this? And then you say to yourself, Bruce Willis, yeah, maybe. I mean, retelling the story again in a new light, I guess you could do that. It could be done. It's just it's going to be tough. but It's going to make money. I'm pretty sure of that. But it's. Not the easiest thing to reboot. That's a cult classic. A lot of people are going to be really comparing to it. But here's the thing. When it comes to the critics, it doesn't matter. Because all the Death Wish movies got panned. None of them got any critical acclaim ever. If you look at Rotten Tomatoes, Death Wish, I think the first one got like, what, 58% like? Something like that? Or no, 70% like. And maybe like, what, 40%? Freshness from Rotten Tomatoes because people just the critics just hate that movie, they just hate the gore and the violence. There's nothing to it. I get it, but it's just that's just one of those kind of movies. And then with Bruce Willis, same thing, so that's probably telling. But it's a Bruce Willis movie, he still banks in the box office. And this movie for him, it's not like he needs to be overly active it's not like him doing red it's not like him doing hostage it's not like him doing all the other movies he's done before leading up from Die Hard to now he's an older actor so there's only so much he can do in these movies and for this probably works out for him he just gets to go ahead and wield the gun and start taking people down in some new creative ways we see in the trailer but what i have noticed is they changed the trailer a couple times they tried to put acds back in black into it and they tried to go a little little fun, like here, look cool, killer guy, vigilante. And then they changed it and made it more serious when you saw the trailers change. All that change. Now, moving on, the Red Sparrow, Jennifer Lawrence. Listen, regardless of why she's going to take a year off fixing our democracy, doing some other things for herself, that's fine. But all in all, she's a good actress. I do like her. Now, I haven't watched *Silver Linings Playbook*, but I did watch *American Hustle*. I loved her in it. I did watch the first *Hunger Games*, and I just do like a lot of things that she does. There is just been some movies that she's been in that have been kind of rough. Mother, I don't know how many people were going to watch that. Just didn't look that good, and I don't. I know it didn't do that well, so she's kind of struggled. Red Sparrow. Is a direction for her that is, almost feels like a little bit. Well, it's not gonna be what Charlize Theron did in Atomic Blonde, where it's like another European thing. But her playing a Russian spy and manipulative and sexy. Well, that's a good. It's an interesting story, and for her, I want to buy into it. Joel Edgerton's pretty good uh, actor. I like his some of his stuff he's been in. Jeremy Irons being in it adds a little extra flair. It's it's a movie I will watch. I'm surprised that. They put this movie and gave it such a bad panning as well, but Red Sparrow, 52%, but a lot of people are going to want to watch it. And basically the story is being said that Jennifer Lawrence did a really good job in this, that like you were stood out. And what I want to see is, listen, she already has a look where she looks, has like, has like a very innocent face, just pretty. So how much can you see this pretty girl that is in shape, you know, change from Hunger Games... And go into this much more adult view, which not nothing, not, not a stretch for her, but not only doing the sexy part, but now kicking ass. That's the other part we need to see here. That's what's going to be the interesting part of this movie. So I will be reviewing Red Sparrow and Death Wish next week here on the show. Now, I talked about Netflix. And for those of you that have gotten to this point and listened to the hour-long interview and got to hear, yeah. Yeah. Netflix is eyeing a total of about 800, me, 700 original series and movies that they're going to have out slated to be on the platform in 2018. This is from a Variety. Netflix is set to spend upwards of $8 billion on content in 2018 and have 700 original TV shows on the service worldwide this year so this bucket of content is going to help subscriber base uh netflix go up uh, very quite much he talked about this at the morgan stanley technology media and telecom conference and this 700 range figure he includes 80 non-english language original productions from outside the u.s some of them from germany some from mexico Plus, there will be new and existing original series, Orange is the New Black on Narcos. And CFO David Wells, who spoke at this conference, he says, the company's strategy continues to be, let's continue to add content. It's working. It's driving growth. Okay. When asked about how much content spending is enough for Netflix, Wells replied, there's no magic line when you know exactly where you are. In terms of efficiency, in addition to original series, there will be 80 original films in 2018. Netflix says there's no religion about the source of programming. And this is from Ted Sarandos, chief content officer. He says, we're about having the best content. We don't necessarily have to do it ourselves. (laughs) And that funny. At the end of 2017, Netflix ended with 117 million streaming members worldwide. Now, the other story that has to talk about with Netflix is Ryan Murphy, who has done a lot of work for Fox and FX. He has apparently signed a five-year deal with Netflix to produce content for them. When the group at Netflix was asked about this, they said, We like the kind of content he creates. So he is the person I mean, Ryan Murphy is his production company's behind the new drama for Fox called 911, FX's American Crime Story, American Horror Story, and the feud anthologies. Now, Adweek tells more on this story about the pending Disney deal that prompted Ryan Murphy possibly to leave for Netflix. So, 21st Century Fox adopted a business as usual pr- approach to a uh, um, until Disney's fifty-two point four billion dollar deal to acquire the company passing the regulatory program uh, process, excuse me, but. Ryan Murphy wasn't ready to worry about what was going to happen to him when this was all said and done. Now, he is the second mega producer to depart for Netflix because Shonda Rhimes and her production Shondaland has left ABC Studios for the streaming service as well. Much like Rhimes, Murphy will continue to be involved with his current shows on FX and Fox. Plus, another FX uh, drama called Pose for the duration of the runs. And given that anthology series American Horror Story, American Crime Story, and Theater are reinvented each season, some of those shows could conceivably still be in production at the conclusion of his Netflix deal. He already has two products right now set up at Netflix Ratchet, an origin story focusing on Nurse Ratchet. The iconic sadistic nurse from the 1975 film One Flew Over the the Cuckoo's Necks, which will star Sarah Paulson, who he loves to really uh, cast on a lot of different features. She might do really good in that role, by the way. And The Politician, which could star Barbara Streisand and Gwyneth Paltrow. There's a mix. Murphy said in a statement of his own that he said, quote, The history of this moment is not lost on me. I'm a gay kid from Indiana who moved to Hollywood in 1989 with $55 savings in my pocket. So the fact that my dreams have crystallized and come true in such a major way is emotional and overwhelming to me, end quote. So this is the same person, Ryan Murphy, who helped to build hit shows like Glee, Nip Tuck, The People vs. O.J. Simpson, and American Horror Story. Fox is losing something big along with FX. How they replace it, only time will tell. Now, what happens to FX as a result of this? Well, the network, which is run by John Landgraf, has American Crime Story in Atlanta right now dominating his programming on FX. So right now, the future of FX's brand seems to be more of a question mark than an exclamation point. So people are asking whether an edgy brand like FX can thrive in a family-friendly owned company like Disney. And that's why Ryan Murphy probably left. So he says he wasn't prepared for what happened. But he did explain to Disney chairman and CEO Bob Iger, listen, the stuff I do specific, specifically is not Disney. I'm going to have to put Mickey Mouse, am I going to have to put Mickey Mouse in American Horror Story? <laughs> Being funny. Tongue in cheek. So, despite FX's early successes, they have to say, basically, we have to prove that we weren't just lucky. The notion that for artistic reasons we were going to have to be pushing towards premium made some advertisers uncomfortable. So, this is FX, the same channel that brought us The Shield, Nip Tuck, Rescue Me, and It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, followed by Sons of Anarchy, Damages, and Justified. Look, You want to talk about, like, a lot of shows I've watched and enjoyed immensely. S.H.I.E.L.D., Nip Tuck, Sons of Anarchy, Damages, Justified, American Horror Story, American Crime Story, and The Americans. Those are, like, a top ten of great shows right there of the current age. He's also part of Atlanta. They also have Atlanta, of course, with Donald Glover and Better Things. So a key component of FX's stellar reputation among audiences and advertisers is the unusually gross relationship that Landgraf and his team have with their creators. I tend to hire people who are very passionate about making great television. And I make a very clear binary choice. Do I want to support this person in doing this wholeheartedly or not? If the answer is yes, then he says, win, lose, or draw, we're in all the way. He says, the network's role is not the lending somebody's point of view, but the stealing a hit. Distilling It, excuse me. Trying to do my voice at the same time. He famously passed on Breaking Bad because he was worried about the time that FX had another drama about a white male anti-hero. <laughs> well, that was a mistake. Let me talk about the Louis C.K. situation. Talking about the over-the-top service they have now, the new digital service. Basically, Landgraf and Marchese, Joe Marchese is a partner for FX. They say that it's still going to be business as usual because the Disney Fox deal will take a year to 18 months for it to close. If the these De- if and when the Disney deal goes through, John McGraw says he's setting his aspirations sky high. If we're given the resources, I want to be the best brand in television. So they're not going to play their hand and say they're scared. But I would be worried if it was going to be Disney. I mean, look look what happened to ESPN, look what happened to ABC. Listen, Disney knows how to take care of their own, but I am worried when they are such a large company do they know how to do other things? Because, I mean, same thing goes with Miramax. Like, that's the one area that they always had edgy content. Meanwhile, Disney does all their other stuff. Like, it's a big company, it's got a lot of money, but do they really let people kind of do their own thing in their own way? Is the question. USA and Sci Fi have new shows. They have Unsolved, the story of uh, Notorious Big and Tupac. I mean,. The guys look like it. I'm not really uh much about it. And then they have a new Superman prequel, Krypton, which is on sci fi. And the problem with sci fi is that I'm really worried about them doing it on sci fi because sci fi in USA you know, there are two channels that feel like these days they're really not they're not always ready to go ahead and stick with the show, only on rare occasions. I'm still surprised Queen of the South is still there. But when it comes to USA, the one show that I think is their knockout hit is Mr. Robot and Suits, which has survived for so long. But they tried other shows, they tried Satisfaction, they tried other shows I can't think of right now, and they just don't give it much of a chance. And they've obviously enjoyed putting more reality shows out there that they thought would be pretty good. And that's where they kind of stick it with when they have to fill programming at night. That's where they want to go with if they're not running reruns of NCIS, Law & Order, SVU, or Modern Family, because that's what they always do. March 21st, I thought it was this week, but actually it's in a couple of weeks, Sci Fi's prequel, Krypton, will focus on Superman's grandfather, Sig L., So when asked about Krypton, which is the show I'm a little more concerned about, he says the heart of, oh, this is more of the corporate talk, so I have to get the voice ready. The heart of sci-fi's brand is all about fandom. This is, uh, by the way, this is um, President Chris McCumber, almost said McCucumber, but no, it's McCumber. So when he asks about Krypton, he says, the heart of sci-fi's brand is all about fandom. And I can't imagine a bigger fandom than Superman fans. So having Krypton certainly plays into what we're doing. We're bringing out new series for sci-fi and finding the shows that we believe will not only have a built-in fan base, but a fan base that we can grow from that. And that's a canned phrase that i ever heard one. Asking if Krypton performs before making other decisions regarding DC properties. He says, we're actively developing superheroes and comic series. Certainly, Krypton's a big part of that. We have a pilot called Dudley Class, which is in the young adult comic book area. So certainly, those are areas we actively want to program. Okay. I just don't think sci-fi has found its identity yet. Like, do you know a show that, has, that stood out there on sci-fi that says, wow, I, I mean, yeah. I mean, I talked about it with Luke earlier on the program about Incorporated. You put Matt Damon, Ben Affleck behind it, and you can't even hold on to it for a year? So, interesting how we have these shows coming in here, and I just talked about this with Luke Montpellier, and thinking about where we have this all together. So, yes, yeah, Sci-Fi went through a brand refresh by calling themselves Syfy, S-Y-F-Y. Well, this is what Chris Pecumber said as well. What I've been really happy with is bringing new audiences to sci-fi. Look at Happy. Happy is younger, more upscale than shows that we've had before. Futurama is an acquisition that's bringing a new audience to sci-fi. The same ones that we're watching on Futurama Comedy Central, I guess. We knew that Futurama would be a good addition for us, but to bring viewers who had never sampled sci-fi before is a real win for us. Yeah, you just brought an audience over. It's not like a program you did yourself. And most shows on sci-fi, they're always from somewhere else, usually Canadian-owned or something like that, and they bring them over. Usually. Isn't that how it works? Always works. We believe that Krypton will do the same thing. It all started with the magicians. The magicians brought in a younger and more female audience to sci-fi. So we're bringing in this audience, and we definitely upped the game on the audience mix, which is a great story for us. I'm going to sound like Tony the Tiger right there. Great! Might as well have been talking like that, the way he kind of uh, pumps up these shows. Walking Dead, which has been a mainstay and truly a powerhouse of a show on AMC is struggling. The mid season premiere of season eight, it drew 7.9 million people. Actually 8.3 million for this of the premiere, the finale in December at 7.9 million. This is a show that used to get 16 million people watching the same night. lost half their audience. What happened? In January, AMC announced the series showrunner Scott Gimple is being elevated to the newly created role of chief content officer, overseeing the entire Walking Dead television universe, including The Walking Dead, Fear of the Walking Dead, and potential brand extensions on a variety of platforms. Angela King, who's been a writer on the show since 2011 and co-producer since 2013, is being promoted by Gimple to executive producer and showrunner of The Walking Dead starting with season 9. Now, this is what they've done in terms of audience. Their biggest audiences were in season 4 and 5. Almost 16 million viewers on average. Season 6, 13.7. Season 2 had 8.1, and then it got to 12.3. Then it got up 13, to something to 15 million. Then they dropped off in season 5, 7, 12 million viewers, season 8, 8.3. Is the show starting to lose its spot? But it still gets such an audience. Is it partly because the on-demand audience? Or is it because the last of appointment viewing starting to go by the wayside. People are just not sitting around to watch Walking Dead on Sunday nights. Or it's just running out of steam because eight seasons is a lot for a show like that. Maybe it's just starting to make us run and go through. And maybe Fear the Walking Dead is making people get a little bit tired of the Walking Dead series. You have to think about that. All right, moving on to TV. Let's go ahead and go back to music right now as we uh, talk about the Billboard Top 10 on the Hot 100. Top 10 starts like this. Migos and Stir Fry, number 10. Pray For Me, We Can Let Tender Lamar from the Black Panther soundtrack at number 9. Meant to Be, number 8. All the Stars moves up from 9 to number 7. Black Boy JB featuring Drake Look Alive, Look Alive, number 5 which replaced Rockstar which moves to number 6. And then the same top four for the fifth straight week. Havana, four. Finesse, three. Perfect, two. God's plan, one. On Spotify, God's plan got 75 million list, uh, listens. Whew. Wow. How about that? A couple things in the radio I want to bring up. First of all, I got to talk about, oh, boy. Bankruptcy is just all about to happen, okay? And here's the funny part. This is what I got to talk about. In the middle of bankruptcy for iHeartMedia, iHeartMedia filed a Form AK with the securities, the SEC, making public that its board of directors has elect, elected not to make the interest payments due Thursday, March 1st, 2018, of approximately $59.1 million because of some priority guarantee notes that were due a $59 million payment and a $78.8 million payment. The board of directors noted that it elected not to make the payments, quote, as active discussions continue among its lenders, note holders, and financial sponsors regarding a comprehensive debt restructuring. But basically, they're another 30 days away from, from Chapter 11. It's about to happen, pretty much. Meanwhile, executive bonuses were doled out. Now, this is the type of bullshit... When a company is crumbling to its knees, a company like iHeartMedia with 800 radio stations, and how many employees underneath them? Look at the fucking money that these... I'm sorry, listen, language is going to come because this just pisses me off. Okay. Compensation committee. These assholes. Okay. The chairman and CEO, Bob Pittman, our renewed 2018 key incentive bonus plan. For each calendar quarter of 2018, he'll be receiving a target bonus of $2.325 million. What? Richard J. Bressler, President and Chief Operating Officer and Chief Financial Officer, he will earn a quarterly bonus for each quarter of $1.325 million. $1,325,000, $2,325,000, if you need me to say it correct, okay? It's a lot of money. Robert H. Walls, executive vice president, general counsel and secretary. He gets a quarterly bonus for each calendar quarter of 2018, $225,000. Roughly $4 million right there. For what? What have they done that's been so special? Bob Pittman, oh, okay, yeah, you ran MTV for a while and you did whatever, you, you started it, okay. I, I'm, I'm sorry, when do these CEOs, listen, I get if you're, you know, you're doing well in the stock market and you're making a whole lot of money and, you know, a lot of people are making money off your company and you get an executive bonus. Okay, listen, I'm not one of those people that are like, you know, take bonuses away from all CEOs. Yeah, you know what, you give them a bonus if they're making the money, And they're doing their job above and beyond. But what do these guys get out of getting such a nice, big, fat bonus every quarter? Remember, every quarter. So right there, that's $16 million in bonuses. Not to mention their regular salaries. Are you out of your mind? Out of your mind, iHeartMedia. I mean... How can I respect anyone that does that? You run this company to the ground. You do not know how to build radio stations. You do not know how to program them. Hell, I did a survey for iHeartRadio the other day, and I'm saying to myself, listen, you know, the platform's good. Hell, the stream's great. I can access things. There's a little functionality issues I have a problem with, but I told them one thing's flying out. You got some crappy radio stations up there because you don't know how to program them. You got a lot of top 40 radio stations, classic rock, you got rock, you have sports, you got news talk, and some of them are so poorly run with such great properties, and you got actually some pretty good talent that you have destroyed with your thumb on the scale, really leveraging these people, bringing morale to the company. Maybe they don't want to say it, but morale in every programming department or production department and every Media cluster around the country must be miserable. I remember what it felt like when I was in iHeartMedia and I was sitting in Clear Channel when it was called Clear Channel and being in those gray wallpapered walls. Now, I had it okay because I worked overnight, so I never had to worry about the brass. I did when I worked at Channel 25 and I learned what that was like. Ugh. But I'll tell you something. Something about handling... This crap, no oversight whatsoever. Things just happen the way they do, and that's it. It's horrible. It's unspeakable. It's immoral, is what it is. iHeartMedia should not be allowed. I mean, they should be taking funds away the, the bankruptcy should have already happened a long time ago. Let's say that first of all. Long time ago, we should have had the bankruptcy for iHeartMedia. We've been waiting for this to implode. And by the way, Liberty Media, what are you doing getting yourself involved? You're already bad enough hemorrhaging money into a debt-laden serious XM, which is taking forever to try to turn around and make a buck. And now you're trying to salvage iHeart Media and take 40% claim into the company and add some money to kind of help restructure the debt. You're just I mean I feel like Liberty Media is just giving an excuse to try to keep iHeart going because Liberty Media has some kind of vested interest in it and getting it on a cheap price. Please let this company implode, let all of the resources get sold out in auction, and let all these stations get picked back up by local programmers. This is ridiculous. iHeartMedia is the epitome of what's wrong when creative and corporate are at a a standstill. When creative is being stifled and corporate is truly corrupt and controlling and taking over all the things that are possible from creating great content. iHeartMedia is to blame for so much Look at what Cumulus did. Cumulus went the same way. Ruining radio stations. All the legacy ABC radio stations. Messing them up. Doing a lot of things that should have never been done. Destroying the KGO lineup. Destroying WABC. I mean, just making mistake after mistake after mistake. And Cumulus also... The kind of things they did while they also let their CEOs come away with executive bonuses. The same bullshit. For what? They do not deserve it. They have done nothing. They might have said they have, but all Bob Pittman's ever done is gone on CNBC and Bloomberg and basically dodged questions about debt restructuring and the debt that they've had, which is $20 billion. What are they, the federal government? your lenders, your shareholders, your financial sponsors, the Bain Capital people, your employees that probably have a 401k vested in your company and your shares of stock. And look what you're doing to them. Your CEOs make all this money and yet you refuse to barely, if ever, give bonuses or raises to your team i mean come on guys this is not the radio i thought we were supposed to be in this is i mean i'm gonna go back and tell you that part of the thing was why radio turned into what it was is because of the 1996 telecommunications act That destroyed everything. Deregulation destroyed the radio industry. It let Clear Channel become the behemoth it was. It only took them basically five short years to accumulate up to 1,600 stations. And they've done everything they could to keep this behemoth alive, to milk it dry, to destroy whatever moral, creative content that's left. How many people coming on the radio really get a chance to succeed and become something that they want to be? If you don't know somebody, you don't get to do anything. That's the way it is. You have to rub shoulders with the right people. It's nothing about your talent in some cases. The only talent that survives are the ones that were there before this all happened and were able to retain their jobs, hold on to their contracts, and hold on to their dignity. Be honest. That's why we have so many old programmers out there that are out there doing morning shows or anything else Even if they would have been there beforehand, but they have to do this in order to stay and survive. That's what they have to do. That's what they have to do. So keep that all in mind, folks. Look at all the things that have to happen in 22 years to only now see that these 22 years have destroyed the radio industry, in my opinion. In many ways, when some of the best radio stations on a dial in a city in a market are low-power FMs, meanwhile, the 100,000-watt Class A signals that come in perfect on any radio put out droll, dribble, trash, the same five, ten songs over and over, Again, one of these days I'm gonna go through and I'm gonna detail what that media based program does, the one that is part of this. Because remember, Clear Channel and iHeartMedia, all they do is, you know, they buy the companies that have the automation when it comes to the next gen and profit. They buy, you know, the billboards that they need to promote themselves so they don't have to go anywhere else. Right? And they consolidate everything and micromanage everything. Websites all look the same. Radio stations sound the same. They have the same music on them no differentiation. Only a little bit that maybe some consultants might have said because there's all oh, this reach might be good for them or this might this might call out better. Whatever. Music directors have no control there. Program directors have no control there. It's all like that. Believe it. And iHeartMedia needs to go down in flames all these good people need to find new jobs in these new radio stations under new management that will take care of them and actually treat them right. But iHeartMedia needs to fall. It needs to fail. This is not General Motors or something like that. No, this is a company that is big enough to fail and it needs to fail. This is also to help the rest of the radio market become competitive again because competition will create Better content, and better content creates cash. Simple as that. Why can't these people figure that out? They're just not radio programmers. Give these stations back to radio people again. Give these back to people that want to do radio, that actually want to program. Give these stations back. Let's fix this mess once and for all iHeartMedia, please go into Chapter 11. Save yourselves. Get out of this crap. Do something with some dignity. Go to Chapter 11. Put yourself bankrupt. Auction your stations off. And leave us. And leave this radio industry be. How dare the Mays brothers allow this company to turn into this? I don't think Larry Mays ever wanted to, this company to go like this. But, man, his brother, his sons did it. And the rest of the staff that has been on top here for many years, they did it too. Those guys should also go on permanent retirement. Go consult somewhere else or something like that. I don't care. You know, be the next Gabe Hobbs for all I care. But you know what? Just stay out of our lives. Stay out of radio. You're no good. You've already made your money being corrupt and difficult. And being everything that radio doesn't need. So take your money and get out. Get out right now. Please get away. Go away from radio. Don't ever come back. Okay, that's my rant on radio. Thank you for that. I needed that. This is what this show's for. It's for me to have time to really let myself out because who else am I going to talk about this with? I'm not going to talk about this amongst friends and coworkers and people like that. They're not going to listen to me go in this diatribe, but I'm figuring some of you out there after you've heard a great interview and you heard some great information, maybe you'll sit around. How far have we gotten to this recording? What about hour 45 minutes? Maybe you'll sat around and listen to my diatribe and my full fledged rant about radio. Maybe you'll stuck around for that. And if you did, I thank you very much for sticking around. And here's the reason why if iHeartMedia got out of the mix, radio could actually do okay. Because here's the thing. Nielsen.com actually put out a report saying as the audio landscape evolves, broadcast radio remains king. So people are still listening to the radio. Isn't that amazing? They did their comparable metrics report. According to their findings... Each week, more Americans tune into AMFM radio, 93%, then watch television, use smartphones, tablets, or computers. At the same time, streaming audio offers consumers even more ways to listen across many of those devices. When it comes to how many, AMFM radio continues to reach significantly more people each week, 228.5 million adults, 18 plus. TV gets 216.5 million. That's including live DVR and time shifted, 204 million for app apps or webs on a, or, or the web on a smartphone, and 127.6 million for video on a smartphone. Broadcast radio reaches 228.5 million. That's more than 67.6 million for streaming audio, 35.9 million using satellite radio. And $20.7 using podcasts. Americans use radio five days a week compared with three days for streaming on smartphones and tablets, two days for streaming on a computer. The total time spent listening to the radio, a factor of 14 to one. Some interesting things right there. And Radio Inc. tells us about what the future radio lies. They say it belongs to the producer. This is from Spike Santee at radioinc.com. Now, this is something I also disagree with, but I'll go through some of this and explain. Content is king, and the most engaging content, the most entertaining comment, content, excuse me, commands the highest prices. One of the shows, well, they talk about Jimmy Kimmel's show, and how produced at 4 o'clock Pacific time, highly produced in advance of the recording section session to look like it's live and spontaneous. In the book, Good to Great, author Jim Collins identifies the key factors to help a good company become a great company. One of those key factors, he says, was the willingness to embrace, quote, technology accelerators, end quote. So the key word is to embrace. In the era of downsizing, he talked about a young man named Chris Stryker. About his positive attitude handling production and content on five radio stations. Chris was able to put all the station computers in one room with a swivel chair that allowed him to move from one station to the next as he produced the programming. are you listening to this? He puts all the station computers in one room with a swivel chair. He's the only one programming them. Stations are carrying a lot of satellite programming, so the first thing Chris did was contact all the syndicators and request localized content from the shows. So you can't create the content yourselves. You need somebody else to create this simulated localized content. Is that right? Am I hearing that right? He carefully produces each show with a localized content to make it seamless, even asking for do-overs if it didn't just fit right. Chris even went so far as to get the hosts of the shows to record contests. Well, to the, take the 10th caller kind of stuff. He really didn't answer the phone and take the 10th caller for the winner. He produced it. This is him being a producer. This is like a program director producing for five radio stations of this national, you know, contrived, put together, machine built type content. It's syndicated. Supposedly it's going to work for every market in the country, whatever this content is. I mean, wow. Wow. It's amazing what people think this works. Now, so he said. This writer says he's the Chris was producing his shows just like they do in Hollywood or New York City, and it was more entertaining and more engaging than other guys across town with an air staff. You don't let people on air talk anymore. You're so worried about commercials, you don't even give them a chance to be a celebrity and actually endorse products. Or maybe the talent is just bad because they're so cheap, and because they don't want to bring on real talent that they have to pay, so they just bring up anybody that will do anything and be like the full Swiss Army knife, just so they can have a chance to have a little bit of time on the air and do a couple of liners or voice track, because Lord knows they want anybody in the studio between nine and five, outside of nine and five, actually doing something live on a real microphone. Oh no, tape it. Got to make sure it sounds right. Oh, well, we just can't do it impromptu. We can't trust those those disc jockeys. They'll do it live. So, according to <laughs> this is amazing, Spike Santi Spike, you're you're kidding me, right? This is amazing. <laughs> this is an actual line from a, from a suit like this. Now, Spike Santibo is the author of Four Keys to Advertising Success. So I don't know if he's a radio guy or not, but here's the thing. He said this. It isn't voice tracking software that is hurting radio. It is the attitude about using voice, voicing tracking software. <laughs> that's funny. That's really funny. Where did he come up with that one? Wow. that's a That's a, I don't know where he got that, but that's a... Very funny line. a stupid line. We need to think like the professionals do. It takes a lot of preparation to sound natural and unscripted. For and out the door won't cut it in today's competitive environment of podcasts and other audio entertainment. Well, I'm sorry to disappoint you guys, but you know what? I don't do over and over and over takes of this program. I mean, for myself. I usually do this on the fly. You know what I might do? I might stop tape to do something else for a minute because I have to do something. But for the most part, I'm not stopping for anything. I'm not revoicing my words and voice tracking. No, I'm doing it on the fly because I'm a professional. Even though this is a podcast, I try to do this as live, as live as I possibly can. What if I got to do this show Live. What would it sound like if I had to do it out there and I couldn't handle doing it live? How bad would that be? That would be horrible. With smartphone recording quality, we have a recording studio in our hands all the time. We can create content anytime we want. What? Okay, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. Using your smartphone to record content. Yes, you want to record an interview, like say for a sports station Or other things that are going on, like man on the street kind of stuff? Okay, I can understand that. But you want to use smartphone recording quality to put on the air? For talent? Really? We may never never use most of it, but the content we do use will give your show more entertainment value than just announcing the songs we are playing. The role of programmers of the future will not be as DJs or announcers. It will be as content producers. Well, they already are. I mean, That doesn't mean they're always doing stuff that's just on the air behind the microphone. Yeah, they're doing other things. They can be content producers. We will still be doing DJing and other announcer tasks, but the future belongs to the radio producer, the person who can see the big picture that the entertainment value of the show is the sum total of all the programming elements. We must be aware of the science of psychology. Wow. Do you think any of these radio programmers ever did psychology when they went to school? That's a blow line. To create engaging content. We have a lot for us going already. Radio listening is a one-on-one and emotions-driven experience. Oh, yeah. We're just going to tape that and package it for you. Okay. To be a professional and produce emotionally engaging and entertaining content. What radio station's doing that in the morning? <laughs> <sighs> This is funny. We must take a page from the professional's playbook. Which professional are you talking about there? Ripping and reading is not show prep. The computer is not a creativity killer. Show prep takes hours, not minutes. The computer helps you maximize your creative resources and helps you create correction, produce a more entertaining product. Then he uses a Zig Ziglar quote that says, it is your attitude. And not your aptitude that determines your altitude. I am truly, I'm always, I guess I can never be not surprised with everything that goes on with radio and the stupidity of the people that are in the radio business and this is not me talking about the people that are behind the air most of the times. There are some people that are not great, but there are a lot of people that are really good behind the scenes and those behind the mic that are very good that are not getting a a a fair shake and not getting paid for it properly either. So, again, this show will take time to continue to out the idiots in radio and put some kind of context behind why we need changes in radio. And the radio programmers that do shows out there, they don't, when you hear radio industry podcasts out there, listen, don't want to call them out? No, but I will. All Things Radio, Radio Stuff, Larry Gifford, listen, you might have done radio the way you've done it, but man, there are some things that need to change in this industry because it's not the way it was. You can still do things the 5149 style some radio companies prefer to do it. Okay, that's fine. But man, you are creating something else. Radio is not meant to be an assembly line. It's a platform. It's a stage. Do we not forget radio is theater of the mind? Who the hell's getting to do theater anymore for the mind? It's not radio. It's podcasting. And radio has more reach as we just mentioned. So it's time, and I will continue to ask that we get more things that will create theater of the mind. We want radio to be entertaining again. It's got to come back. And I'm going to be around, and I will praise the day it does. Well, anyway, that's another Creative Not Corporate podcast for this week. Thanks for listening to all of it. Do yourself a favor and safely pat your back. Because you listen to another great creative dot podcast you went through it all i thank you so much for it i thank you for supporting our sponsors until next week we'll have another great interview with doug hemphill ron bartlett audio mixers from blade runner and blade runner 2049 make sure as much as possible to keep creative out of your corporate i'm out Thank you for listening to the Creative Not Corporate Pop Culture and Media Podcast. To learn where to subscribe to the show and how to follow the king of podcasts anywhere on social media, go to our website at creativenotcorporate.com. That's creativenotcorporate.com. The Creative Not Corporate Podcast is brought to you by Amazon Shop, where the king of podcasts shops for everything and anything he needs by going to kingofpodcasts.com slash amazon. Also, check out The King of Podcasts' work every day at webmasterradio.fm and cannabisradio.com. And look for his other original podcast series, The Wrestling Is Real Podcast. Learn about these and more at kingofpodcasts.com.